When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, one of my favorite writers is a guy by the name of Adam Makos. He's a young guy, he's in his 30s like me. Uh, but since he was a teenager, him and his brother have published this magazine that's been dedicated to telling the stories of World War II veterans uh, in particular. Since then, it's grown into other wars as well, Korean, Vietnam War, etc. And Adam has come across some amazing stories with his interviews he's done with these veterans. And last year, he published a book called uh, A Higher Call, had him on the podcast about it. Incredible story about this German fighter pilot who escorts a damaged U.S. bomber back to Allied territory during World War II. After this chance encounter, the two men, as old men, are able to meet each other and they become friends. A really incredible story. If you haven't already, go check that podcast out and go get the book, A Higher Call. Adam's got a new book out and it's really good. This time, instead of looking at the World War II, he takes a look at a story he found from the Korean War. The book is called Devotion, and it's about two men from completely different worlds. One is a black son of a, a southern sharecropper. The other is a, a young guy from Connecticut, blue-blooded, supposed to go to Harvard, decided to enlist in the military instead. And uh, these two guys become fast friends, and that friendship is put to the test when his plane goes down on a, a remote mountain in North Korea, and the other one goes after him. And we're going to get into the details of the story because it's just incredible what happens. So that's what we're going to talk about the book today, his new book, Devotion. And we're going to also discuss like why Adam thinks it's so important, why he's so dedicated, why he's dedicated his life and his career to uh, telling and sharing these stories of these, these World War II and Korean War veterans and also the other uh, veterans who have served in other wars and the lessons we can learn from them to be better men. Uh, great podcast, great book. Without further ado, Adam Makos and Devotion. Adam Makos, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Good to be with you. Well, great to have you back. So you were on our podcast, I guess, last year, right? <laughs> yeah, time is flying. Time is flying. Um, so you're, you know, you're known to be like a World War II guy. That's the, been your thing. Uh, but your latest book is about a story that's unbelievable that came out of the Korean War. Um, I'm curious, before we get to the story... Let's give some backdrop for our listeners about the Korean War. Because it, it's, it's called the Forgotten War. People forget that we, we fought this war in Korea. Why is it that we, that we forgot about this war that happened right after World War II? 
Well, Brett, I, I think we Americans like a victory, a win. We're not we're not ones for a tie. Um, and, and I think a lot of people see the Korean War as a tie. It ended in a stalemate on the 38th parallel. That stalemate continues to this day. The war never really officially ended. And so we didn't have the same kind of victory parades. Uh, we don't even have, I, you can't even point to Korean War books or movies. I mean, the last big movie was probably Pork Chop Hill starring Gregory Peck back in 1959. And uh, it, it's remained forgotten. I think it's also it, the, in the eyes of the American public, it, it lacks the romance. I, I use the word lightly, but of, say, jumping into Normandy on D-Day and liberating French villages. It was a, it was a, an ugly war. I mean, it was fought in the snow and the cold. It was fought in the mud and the hills. But it, the sacrifices were just as heavy. Yeah. And can you tell who, who was involved in it? Because there were a lot of players. When I, I, I learned a lot about the Korean War. Um, so obviously you had communists in Korea, um, but also the Chinese and Russians were involved as well? Yeah, it's it's an incredible little fact, and, and I had to really teach myself about this war, because going into this book, I didn't know much about it. I, I mean, when you tell the average American that we fought the Chinese in the Korean War, it, it's, like a, it's like a slap across the face. It's hard to believe. It, it was originally the North Koreans invading the South, but the North Koreans were armed with Soviet tanks and Soviet guns. In fact, Soviet troops drew up the battle plans for the invasion of the South. So, so Stalin had his hand in that, and he said, okay, do this, and, and Kim Il-sung did it. And at the same time, the Chinese in 1950 um, surprised us. Nobody saw their intervention coming. Uh, they were saber-rattling, but what happened was the war was just about over. The United States jumped in, the English, uh, the UN, and we drove the North Koreans all the way to the edge of their border. We were about to kick them over the Chinese border, win the war, and then we would have had that big World War II-like victory. But instead, under darkness, hundreds of thousands of Chinese troops snuck into North Korea, and they turned the tide of the war, and they prolonged the war by three years, and, and everything changed overnight. And suddenly we were at war with China, North Korea, and in a way, the Soviet Union. Yeah. And I, I thought you made an inter this interesting point at the very beginning of the book, where you said that we often forget the greatest generation fought two wars. And I, I, it, it really blew my mind when I read that, but it was so obvious that you're right. Like, we always think of the greatest generation as World War II, but a lot of these guys that fought in Korea also, or fought in World War II also fought in Korea. Yeah, and, and they, they fought using the same aircraft. So in the case of Devotion, we follow Navy fighter squadron. Well, they were flying Corsair fighters built during World War II. They were shooting 50 caliber bullets. They were dropping the same bombs. Our Marines on the ground, who we follow in this book, they're wearing the same uniforms from World War II. It, it literally was the greatest generation being called back to war. Yeah. So let's get back, to, let's, let's get to the story, the crux of the story, because it is unbelievable. It's about two individuals from two completely separate walks of life who develop a friendship and they go, one of them goes to survive, you know, help them. So how did you discover this story about this uh, crash landing rescue in the, on, a, on a mountain, on a pasture in the middle of, in the middle of Korea? Where did you find the story? 
Well, it was a legend in military circles, uh, what Tom Hudner, the hero of the story, did that day. And so his reputation preceded him. I, I was working for a small magazine at the time, a military history magazine that you know my brother and best friend and I published. And I was in D.C., uh, ready to leave the hotel, and I saw Tom Hudner, the Medal of Honor recipient, sitting across the way, reading his newspaper, waiting for his car. And I went over to him and, and, and I asked him if I could tell this story, if I could interview him. I thought, oh, it'd just be a little magazine article. Well, he gave me his business card and he handed me the keys to this incredible tale. And I soon determined, I said, this is too good for a magazine. This needs to be a book. And the reason I think no one else had ever tried to tell this as a book is simply because, uh, partially because of the nature of the Forgotten War. And as we'll discuss, um, the story... It doesn't have that happy ending that everybody wants where you, you know, it's like the movies we watch where everybody, everything ends in either a wedding or, or a dance off. This doesn't end that way, but it's still just as powerful. Okay. So Tom Hunter, he was the hero. He's this man who crash landed uh, a plane to, to save his, his fellow comrade. But let's talk about the man that, that needed the helping, uh, Jesse Brown. Um, Tell us about him. He was the, the, I guess he was the first black aviator in U.S. Navy history. He, he was. He was the first, uh, first confirmed uh, known black uh, fighter pilot, carrier pilot, uh, pilot in general. And and his his story is so incredible. He came so far. He grew up in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, in the Deep South, in the years just before World War II. And you know he 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 came from uh, nothing. He used to work in the fields barefoot. He'd go home to a shack at night with holes in the roof that would leak when it rained. And yet he had a dream to fly for his country. So he wanted to serve a country that wouldn't even serve him in a bar if he walked into it. Not because of his age, but because of his skin color. And he said, I want to be a naval aviator. Now, everybody who heard this laughed at him. The other farmhands, they would say, you know, black people can't ride in an airplane, let alone fly an airplane, let alone fly an airplane for the United States Navy, because that was the most elite um, flying corps there was. The Tuskegee Airmen broke through during World War II, and they, in classes of upwards of 100 men at once, became pilots. But the Navy never cracked until Jesse Brown came along. And, and he, through his character, through, his, um, through his, his personality, everybody loved this guy. And he broke through and became the first black pilot where so many others had failed. And can you tell us a bit about Tom's personality? Because this is amazing. These are two guys who became friends. You have Jesse, the son of a sharecropper. Uh, Tom uh, is white, but what was his background? Tom was from, uh, I always say they're men from different worlds, because Tom was from New England, and he was from the country club scene. His father and grandfather had run a very successful business, grocery stores, and they prospered during the Great Depression. You know, food was that one commodity everybody needed. And so they had the Hunter Markets. And Tom was supposed to go to Harvard, like his father. He was supposed to inherit the family business, and he was supposed to have a comfortable life. Instead, he, like so many others, said, I want to serve my country. And this was around the time of World War II. So he volunteered to, to essentially join the Navy, went to the Naval Academy, and he graduated just a little too late to fight in the war. The war had ended. And he became a fighter pilot. So this is a, you know, this is a one percenter who becomes a fighter pilot. So you have Jesse, who's a patriot, who wants to serve a country that doesn't really love him. And you have Tom, who throws away the silver spoon to fly for the Navy. 
And how did these guys become friends? They, uh, they were by chance, by fate, um, they were assigned to the same fighter squadron, uh, fighter squadron 32 up in Quonset Point, Rhode Island. And when they first went for their first flight together, it was very awkward at first because when they met in the locker room, they were suiting up. Jesse came over to Tom and, and Tom greeted him and stuck out his hand uh, to shake Jesse's. And Jesse looked down at Tom's hand for a minute in disbelief and then finally shook his hand. And later on that day, he explained to Tom that he had become accustomed not to extending himself that way because back in flight training, he would go up to a white cadet or a white instructor and he'd say, hi, I'm Jesse Brown. And he'd stick out his hand and the other person would keep theirs at their side. And so he'd been left hanging so many times it started to shape his personality. And, and Tom said, you're never going to have to worry about that with me. And so that day a friendship was born. And it seems like from what I read in the book um, that there really wasn't any problems with integrating Jesse into the the squadron. Like the problems that he had was whenever they were interacting with people who weren't a part of the squadron. Exactly. There was a strange sort of Navy band of brothers and it existed, um, you know, when, because these men were all going to war together. I think there's an interesting, uh, oh, I don't know, I don't want to say trend, but I, I've seen where when, when black and white people work together, when they fight together, the racism disappears. Look at a football team in the NFL. You know, everybody's on the same team. Everybody's striving toward the same thing. And it was that way in the Navy. Um, the people on the ship respected Jesse, the squadron, they respected him and, and he didn't expect racism. That was a funny thing. They always said Jesse Brown didn't go looking for a racial problem. He was just there to do his job. And as it so happened, no problem emerged. So let's set up the situation of when Jesse crashes his plane. This is phenomenal. This is, I, this, I guess this is the big battle that we're, uh, think, we, like you said earlier, uh, things changed overnight. Like we were whooping the North Koreans, but then this happened. So what happened? Um, what was this battle that uh, preceded Jesse crashing his plane? It was called the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, and it was fought uh, in northeastern North Korea. You had the army going up the west, you had the marines going up the east, and we were about to just just wipe the North Koreans off the map, literally push them into China. And all these Chinese troops showed up one night and surrounded us. And so the, what happened in the west to the army, they were routed completely. And in the east, the Marines, the 1st Marine Division, now these are the, the heroes of Guadalcanal and Peleliu just five years earlier. Suddenly these 10,000 men were surrounded in a valley there at the Chosen Reservoir. And um, we were facing uh, the destruction of an entire Marine Division. Back home, the papers were calling them the Lost Legion. And they were preparing the American people for the worst defeat in military history. But the Marines had an advantage on their side. Not only did they have better weapons and better training, despite being outnumbered, 100,000 against 10,000. So, so there were 10,000 of our boys surrounded. 10 to 1 were their odds. They had air power. The Chinese did not bring anti-aircraft guns. The Chinese did not bring fighter planes into the Korean War because they were there surreptitiously. They were volunteers, they called themselves, kind of like how you watch Putin send his Russian soldiers into the Ukraine. Well, they're not Russian, they're, they're volunteers or they're other nations. You know, they, they, they have all these different terms. Well, same way in the Korean War. 
And so the Marines had air power, and that's where Tom and Jesse came in to save the day and to tip the scales. Well, can you talk about some of the Marines? Because not, you know, not only do you talk about Jesse and Tom, but simultaneously you're talking about what's going on on the ground. And there were some really phenomenal men on the ground who were doing extraordinary things to, to win this battle. Can you talk about a few of those Marines? Sure. They, um, in order to really appreciate Tom and Jesse's story, I decided very early on when writing Devotion, we had to follow the guys on the ground. And we found just two incredible Marines, uh, one of whom, John Parkinson, was, um, was a young, uh, gosh, 22-year-old at the time of the battle, fighting in an icy creek, literally with their backs to the water, um, as these Chinese human waves overwhelmed them. And, and so you see this desperate fighting in this book. We had to show the suffering of the men on the ground to appreciate who Tom and Jesse were fighting to protect. The other Marine we follow, his name was Ed Cordera. And Ed, a real-life person, again, he lives up in uh, Massachusetts these days, he was one of the few men captured at the Chosen Reservoir. And, and so we show what happens when Ed's hilltop position is overrun, his buddies are, are knocked out or killed or routed, and he wakes up the next morning a prisoner of the Chinese. And, and so we're able to show you the cold of the Chosen Reservoir, it was negative 20 degrees in some spots. We're able to show you the viciousness of it and the hopelessness, and yet we show you how the American spirit can prevail against all of that. I thought it was interesting um, when the, the fighting first started, uh, the Marines were confused because they, they were hearing Tommy guns, uh, which were American guns, like guns the paratroopers used during World War II. How did that happen? How did the Chinese get American weapons in their their hands? Well, this was uh, this was a very sad and tragic element to the Chosen Reservoir battle, and and I, I wavered a little bit, Brett. I didn't know if I should put this in the book because it really it sympathizes or it humanizes uh, the enemy. Uh, the Chinese soldiers we fought at the Chosen Reservoir were largely. Um, nationalists. And now during, of course, World War II, you had the communists and nationalist Chinese, and they put aside their weapons and they put aside their strife and they fought the Japanese together. Well, the United States armed them. We supplied them. They were our buddies. They were our allies. As soon as the war ends, they go to war with each other. The nationalists get pushed out to Taiwan. The communists take over all of China. And all these nationalist soldiers that they captured in their civil war well, what do they do? They suddenly have this battle going on in North Korea, so they send their the former nationalists into these frozen conditions, wearing basically tennis sneakers, without gloves, without food, without air support, and they send them there to die. Now, they're led by communist officers, and if the nationalists ran from a fight, they'd be mowed down. But literally, at the Chosen Reservoir, our Marines were fighting men who five years earlier had been our allies. Yeah, there was a scene uh, in the book where one of the soldiers has an encounter with some Chinese nationalist soldiers saying that they'd fought with the Marines during World War II. Mm -hmm. It was one of the most remarkable things, and, and they shared a cigarette on the hilltop um, as, as they're suffering in the cold together. And it sounds like something a novelist would create. It sounds like something a screenwriter would invent but it really happened. When Ed Cordero woke up and he was taken prisoner, he finds that the men who t took him prisoner, yeah, they carried Tommy guns for a reason. They were nationalists. They spoke English and they didn't hate him. 
and so that's really one of the conflicts the reader goes through in this in this book. You you want the Americans to survive so desperately. You want them to escape this trap. You want Tom and Jesse to kill all the enemy. But then when you get to know the enemy, you say, my God, this is a lose-lose. Yeah, they're, they're thrown into it. Um, exactly. So how does Jesse get shot down? Because like, hey, if the, um, the Chinese didn't have anti-aircraft um, arsenal, like what happened? How did he get... How did he crash into the mountain? Well, what what happened? It was um, it was a December day, December fourth, around uh, one p.m. or so, when he and Tom and a flight of of upwards of ten corsairs were ripping around the valleys, and they were looking for the enemy. See, the Chinese often hid during the day, and they attacked at night to deny us the, our our air power advantage. So they were trying to find the enemy and, and kill them before uh, nightfall came. And the Chinese were known to do several things. One is when an airplane would come, they would sometimes crouch in a ball. And from above, they would look like a, a series of boulders on the landscape. And they, would, they, they were known to stay motionless, even while being strafed. And it's absolutely almost superhuman. They would even hide in the snow, bury themselves. And that's what happened to Jesse. He flew over an unseen group of Chinese soldiers hiding in the snow. And all they would do is fire one volley all at once. They put up 30, 50, 100 bullets. And one of those bullets found the underside of Jesse's aircraft. It punctured his oil tank. And before he knew it, his aircraft was going down. His engine was seizing up. And the only spot they could find was the side of them, basically a pasture high in the mountains. They, they always say a bowl-shaped valley. And he crashed on this high mountain pasture. It looked soft. It looked snow-covered. But beneath it was rock. And he was in a very violent, violent crash. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com manliness. 
That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money in things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. So Tom had a choice to make. And I guess before uh, the instructions they were given about if someone crashed, these were all the, the naval pilots, that they weren't supposed to go after them because you know two dead sh- soldiers is worse than one. Um, but Tom decided to take action. What did Tom decide to do? Well, Tom saw uh, Jesse down there in his aircraft. Everybody was waiting for Jesse to get out. They were, they were saying, what are you waiting for? You know, it's, it's smoking, and they're, they're calling him on the radio. He's not responding. Suddenly they see his canopy open, and he's waving at them. Now, his aircraft, when he hit, it buckled at the nose, almost, uh, I don't want to say 90 degrees rightward, but very severe, maybe 50 or 60 degrees, and he was pinned inside by his right knee. It was crushed against the instrument panel. And so Jesse had taken off his helmet, he'd taken off his gloves in his hurry to escape the aircraft before he realized he was pinned. So suddenly he has no communication because he dropped his helmet down below his feet. He's stuck in an aircraft and there's smoke coming from the nose. There's a 230-gallon fuel tank about five feet in front of him. And a fire is threatening to envelop the entire aircraft. Tom is orbiting overhead along with, at that time, another four aircraft. And he looks down and, he's, and he sees his friend. Now, Jesse's not just his friend. He knows Jesse has a wife. He knows Jesse has a two-year-old baby girl. And he's about to burn alive on a, on, a, on a North Korean mountain far from home. 
And that's when Tom simply radios the rest of the flight. I'm going in. And the other men were stunned. They didn't encourage him. They didn't dissuade him. Some probably didn't even know what he meant. But they knew as soon as they watched him. Tom made a pass over Jesse. He assessed the terrain. And next thing you know, he did this event that had never happened before. It has never happened since. He crash-landed a perfectly good aircraft right next to his friend on that North Korean mountain. And, I mean, was he able to save Jesse? I mean, did he did he get to Jesse before the plane the plane exploded or anything like that? Well, he, he did. And um, Tom, as soon as he opened his canopy, the cold rushed in, and he, his first thought was, what the heck am I doing here? And then he, then he shook, him, shook his head and woke up again, and he said, oh, my God, I've got to get to Jesse. And he ran through the snow. He had hurt his back to some degree in the crash. It had been a hard landing. And so Tom was in pain himself. And when he got to the cockpit, uh, Jesse said, Tom, we have to find a way out of here. And Tom remembers being shocked at how calm Jesse was. And Tom said, oh, he calmed me, me down. So suddenly Tom finds himself relaxed and said, all right, Jesse, let's try something. And, and the first thing Tom did, he tried to pull Jesse out. And he had to use one hand on Jesse's shoulder and the other hand he had to grip the canopy with and pull as they might. Jesse was pushing, Tom was pulling. They couldn't free him. He was pinned so badly. So Tom set about trying to do the next thing. He had to buy them some time. So he went to the front of the aircraft and he shoveled snow onto the fire and it abated. He then went back to the cockpit and he saw that Jesse's hands were freezing. His ears were freezing. So Tom always carried a spare cap with him. So he pulled that cap down over Jesse's head and then he wrapped, he took the scarf from his own neck and he wrapped Jesse's hands and they ended up waiting there together, waiting, hoping a rescue helicopter would come, hoping the Chinese soldiers wouldn't beat the helicopter to it and put a bullet in both of their heads. And as it was, time passed and the sun was setting and uh, Jesse's life was slowly slipping away. And what was the aftermath? I mean, did, were they able to re recover his body or did, did Tom eventually just have, have to leave? It, it was very sad, Brett. Um, Jesse, in one of his last moments of consciousness, he said, Tom, I need you to give a message to my wife. And he said, just tell Daisy how much I love her. And Tom said, I'll do that. And Tom knew Jesse was going to die. And, and it ends tragically. When the helicopter comes, the, the pilot comes out and he says, is that Jesse Brown in the cockpit? And Tom said, yeah, it is. And the helicopter pilot just cursed because... Everyone who met Jesse loved him. And so he and Tom then tried to use an axe to cut through the Corsair fuselage, desperately trying to pull Jesse out one last time. And the, the axe just bounced off the aluminum. It, it wouldn't cut through that frozen metal. And the helicopter pilot then gave Tom a choice. He said, Tom, you can stay here with Jesse and you're going to freeze to death or we have to go now because I can't fly in the dark. And so Tom made this last promise at Jesse. You know, Jesse had already slumped over. He had probably passed. And Tom said, Jesse, we have to leave. We don't have the tools to free you, but we'll be back someday for you. And Tom left, and it was the hardest moment of his life. That's, yeah, when I read that, it was just heartbreaking that he had to do that. Um, so what was the aftermath of this battle? Uh, so you had this tremendous ground force operation, Air Force operation going, uh, the Marine, first Marine Division almost being wiped out. Uh, what what happened? 
Well, it, it actually, um, the American spirit prevailed. And in the end, thanks to the sacrifice of the pilots and men like Jesse, the Marines broke out of the Chinese trap and they marched to the sea and they were picked up on ships and taken down to South Korea. Essentially, the 1st Marine Division escaped to fight another day. And they were back on the battle lines one month later, as it was. So our guys were battered, but they weren't broken. Whereas the Chinese forces they fought, most of them never went back into battle. They were decimated. So the Marine Corps came out as survivors, and they consider the Chosen Reservoir to be one of their finest hours. Um, the aftermath for Tom, he expected to be court-martialed because, as you had said earlier, he had been warned, you do not destroy Navy property pulling some sort of stunt. You don't risk two lives to try to save one. And instead, when he got back to his carrier, the captain of the ship, who was from the deep south, and everybody thought, oh, you know, he is, his father had been a, a, a proponent of segregation. Well, Captain Sisson instead said, Tom, what you did was the most wonderful thing to try to save Jesse. It was the most, uh, he said, there's been no finer act of unselfish heroism in military history. He put that out in a press release back to the United States. And he nominated Tom for the Medal of Honor. And, and it is an award that Tom, several months later, was given by President Truman. He was summoned to Washington and awarded this. But for Tom, he felt, although he earned the, the award, he felt he could still do more for Jesse's legacy and Jesse's family. And uh, what happened to Jesse's family? So yeah, he had a, a wife and a two-year-old daughter. And it just like, I mean, I started crying when he talked about we wrote about how uh, when Jesse's two-year-old daughter, you know, they, they, the family knew that Jesse was dead, but the two-year-old daughter would hear a plane fly by and she'd start yelling, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. God, that got me really, that, that, I'm getting choked up right now thinking about that. Um, but what happened to Jesse's family? Well, it, it, Brett, it's, it's a highly emotional story because you really love this guy and you follow his wife, Daisy. See, there's something in, the, in devotion for women and for men because, as I say in the beginning, this is an American story. That, that's how, how I want it to be seen. It's, it's simply a story of America. And, and so we see Jesse's widow. She's now a widow at age, oh, 23 or so. And she has to find the courage to go on. And, to, and, and the first challenge for her comes when they say, will you come to the White House? Tom is about to get the Medal of Honor. And so Daisy's this young black girl in Mississippi and she's being asked to come to the White House to be essentially the only black person in this gathering. She's never been to something so fancy. She's never been to the capital city. And yet she goes to represent Jesse. And, and part of the story is about how we watch her grow from Jesse's influence. And we watch Tom grow from Jesse's influence. And everybody who knew Jesse became a better person because of him. And, and so there is this emotional moment and um, Jesse had prepared Daisy for his death. He had said, I, you know, I may die. And if so, I want you to, I've taken out insurance policies to make sure you're cared for. And he said, I want you to become a teacher. He said, promise me you'll go to school and become a teacher because I don't want to see you end up in someone's kitchen. Well, Daisy had every intention of doing that if it came to it. And, but then another tragic thing happened. Several weeks after Jesse's death, his mother collapsed and just died. She had a stroke. So they say Jesse, Jesse's death killed his mother as well. They say she's a victim of the Korean War. 
Well, suddenly Daisy, who had these great plans to go to college and to, to carry on and care for their daughter, suddenly she has to care for Jesse's father because he's now devastated by the loss of his son and his wife. So Daisy says, I'm not going to college. I have to care for Mr. Brown. Well, an incredible thing happens, Brett. Uh, Tom Hudner goes home to Fall River, and his hometown throws him a big parade. And at the end, they present him with a check for $1,000 raised from all the citizens. And they say, Tom, this is for you. Go out and buy yourself a new car. You know, do something with this. Go on vacation. And Tom, the next day, takes the check. He signs it over to Miss, Mrs. Daisy Brown, and he sends it down to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. It was the equivalent of about $9,000. And with that money, Daisy ended up going to college. Tom Hudner essentially put Jesse's widow through college. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so you mentioned there that, you know, one of the, the last things that Tom said was, I'm coming back for you. And he made good on that promise. He's making good on it. Can you tell us about what's happened recently, what Tom has been doing in order to make good on that promise? Sure. It was, um, so not only has he worked the rest of his life to keep Jesse's memory alive, and he and Daisy stayed great friends, by the way. They, after that day at the White House when they met, Tom gave Daisy Jesse's last words. They stayed in touch, and they did speeches together. And, and, and they were friends up till Daisy's death um, just a, a year ago. Well, Tom remembered this promise. And when I was writing the book, I got to that chapter and I said, Tom, did you ever try to go back to North Korea? I mean, you, you say it right here in the story. And he said, no, I, he said, nobody goes to North Korea. And I said, well, I know, I know some people. Let me, let me see if we could get you there. And sure enough, we got permission to go to North Korea, much because Tom is a Medal of Honor recipient. And so he's revered in the United States, but also the North Koreans respect that. They respect their elders, um, as is their tradition, and they respect the military. And so they welcomed Tom Hudner. And it was amazing, Brett. In 2013, July, at age 89, Tom Hudner boarded a plane flew all the way from Massachusetts to Beijing, China, then flew into North Korea. And I was fortunate to accompany him. I mean, most people at that age are worried about their golf scores or bouncing their grandkids on their knees. And instead, Tom went there and he sat down with the North Korean army in this boardroom. And these three senior colonels, just like the guys you see on television, they're sitting across from us with the green uniforms or the red shoulder boards, and they're stern-looking and he said, I, I, I come this far to ask you to search for the, the crash site of my friend Jesse Brown. He's on a mountain in the Chosen Reservoir. Can you find him for us? Because our military can't come look for him, but will yours do it? And it was amazing, the response. The North Korean colonel said, I have a message for you from Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader. And they, they explained that Kim Jong-un had been appraised of Tom's trip, and he admired Tom for coming so far after so long to keep a promise to a friend. And Kim Jong-un authorized his army to resume the search for American MIAs beginning with Jesse Brown. Wow. So that, that search is going on right now? It is going on now. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult situation because the North Koreans, there are 7,000 American MIAs, nearly 7,000, still in North Korean soil, still missing from that war. 
and the North Koreans are willing to look for them. Now, of course, for them, they make money. Basically, uh, when we send over our doctors and scientists to help with this process, of course, money comes into the North Korean economy. So they love it. They want to help us. Um, our government, however, doesn't want to put any money in there until they abandon their nuclear ambitions. And so it's a, it's a terrible situation because it's, it's a mission that could benefit both countries. It's a humanitarian mission. It's good for the families of the Korean War. It's good for people like the Brown family to see these, these remains come home, except the American government links this issue to the North Korean nuclear program. And so we're not going to go over there and bring back our own boys until they abandon their, their quest for the bomb. And it seems like these two powers just can't, can't find a compromise. I'm, I'm curious, is there an organization that, uh, that's like fundraising or that people can donate to to help with the, the project? That's a great question. I, I've never heard of a private group doing this. Um, it's mostly the North Korean army. And, and there's some thought, Brett, that, that they probably have already recovered hundreds and hundreds of American remains. We're just not talking with them right now. We, we will not discuss this issue. So they're probably looking for our boys right now. They're probably finding them and they're cataloging them because erosion, the mountains are eroding, you know, there's industrial growth. There's so many things that are disturbing these grave sites. And so it really is a battle against time. And I bet you one day when our countries figure out how to talk to one another, you're going to see a whole bunch of uh, American soldiers come home all at once. And we hope Jesse Brown will be the first among them. Adam, I mean, this is, a, this is an incredible story. Um, and I'm sure researching this, working with Tom, working with the other families of the surviving veterans or the, of the veterans uh, changed you. I mean, how did you become a, a better man in the course of writing this book? Well, I, Brett, I would say one of the biggest issues facing our generation is selfishness and, you know, the narcissism that comes with the Facebook generation. I mean, I think we're all becoming, I don't, we have such an inward focus, you know, and, and, and we all fall victim to it. Oh, how many likes can I get? Oh, how many, how many people, uh, you know, comment on my birthday? We're, you know, you see these girls who become Instagram models and we're basically a generation that's taught to promote ourselves and build our own brand and become celebrities. Whereas Tom's generation and Jesse's was all about helping other people and being part of a, a bigger community. So if anything, I've learned, you know, Tom's captain of the aircraft carrier said it best. There has been no finer act of unselfish heroism in military history. And that says everything about Tom Hudner. He would do anything to help anyone else you know, to the point where he crash lands a plane on a mountain to save a friend. If you and I were driving or, you know, we have to ask ourselves, imagine you're, you're driving with your buddy and he's in the car ahead of you and you're crossing a bridge and his car goes off into an icy river and he's trapped in his car and the river is swelling and he, he can't get out. How many of us would drive our car off the bridge into the icy river to get out and swim over and save our friend? That's effectively what Tom did. You know, he was willing to throw away his life for his buddy. And so all I can learn from that is I can become a, a better man if I study these guys and if I take their lessons to heart and if I remind myself of it consistently that, you know, the, the way to be a better person 
is to look outside yourself. Well, Adam, where can people uh, find out more about the book? Well, Devotion is uh, it's going to be available on, uh, well, obviously starting October 27th, but then onward at bookstores everywhere. Um, it's on Amazon, and, uh, and we're hoping for big things from this book. There's a couple movie studios already interested in taking the story of Tom and Jesse to the big screen. I think they deserve it. I think the Korean War deserves it. Um, you know, we all have a Korean War veteran in our family, Brett. Somewhere in our family tree, we have one. And when we see that veteran that has a hat, a ball cap that says Korea on it, it behooves us as Americans to know what that stands for so that we can say to that guy, thank you for your service, like we say to the World War II veterans, like we say to the Iraqi veterans, but we can actually understand a little bit about what they did and what they fought for. And I, and I hope this book accomplishes that. Fantastic. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Great talking with you again, Brett. I'm glad to be uh, a follower and fan of Art of Manliness. Thank you so much. My guest today was Adam Mikos. He's the author of the book, Devotion. It is out now. It just came out today. So go out and get it. It's on, available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Really, you're not going to regret this. It's a, it's just a fantastic read. And when you're done, you're going to feel uplifted, edified, and inspired. So go check it out. You will not be disappointed. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast and also give us feedback on how we can improve the show. Thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.